0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to Elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty.
2: Radio, radio
0: this is 3CR Breakfast. Oh, yay. Watching the news, analysis Clap and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am oh, to late 30am.
2: Music <laughs>
1: Morning. Good morning. Good morning.
3: Good morning to everyone, especially Anya who is doing paneling.
1: Yes. Ah. We need the applause button. Uh, we actually
3: have the applause button here, we go. No, that's money. That's money. <laughs> Drum roll. Close uh, enough. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! Yes. Paneling is the thing with the mics and the and the buttons, making the noises
1: technology. And yep. technology. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Great. The person in the control seat.
4: Mm. <laughs> the
3: whole show rides on you today. Mm.
1: Yeah. No pressure. Mm. <laughs> Thanks, friends.
4: Already
3: <laughs> awesome.
4: So hey, how
3: are we all?
1: We're good, I think. Mm. Yes? Mm. Anya and I had a good sleep. Yeah. Nice. Feeling rested?
3: That's beautiful. Mm. I've got in some Sriracha hummus.
1: I really want to try it. It just didn't go with my oats, but I'm so excited. <laughs>
3: So I wanted to open with a bit of a thank you to George. <laughs> um, <laughs> Dear listeners, I was having a real crisis. Weekend. <laughs> and um, so George and I went to, oh, I knew it was there as well, but I didn't see you, um, to the rally for refugees on Saturday in Nam. Um, and the turnout was uh, low. It was, it was a small turnout. Um, yeah, it was kind of a, it was actually very, very disappointing, really. Yeah yeah it um yeah and i mean look we we'll play some fox pop and a few people make comment on that and i think it's really um yeah it was just a really strange feeling of um it's i think it kind of compounded the hopelessness that a lot of us are feeling at the moment um i know for me i i left a bit early actually i, I mean i had to get ready for something anyway but i just um Went home and cried in the shower. Yeah. Like I just, yeah. it was just really sad. Um, and just, so,
1: just quickly, just as a mm. quick comparison, there was a protest recently in Israel over the denial of surrogacy rights for gay men, and tens of thousands of people showed up. And when you mm. compare like the culture mm. of protesting um, in Australia to other parts of the world, it is really just yeah. terrible the way that we don't take to the streets in the same way when we should.
3: But it's also, but I also think Australians have it in them when they want to, and so, you know, Invasion Day was formidable. We had 50,000 people plus on the streets of Nam, and we've had, you know, I always think about, like, I think I've waxed lyrical to you about this, I always think about the Work Choices protests, and I know that that was over 10 years ago, but that was, what, 250,000 people on the street? Like, or even the Change the Rules rally recently for the um the union movement. Like, mm-hmm. people, people come out when they care. Yeah,
1: so we have it in us, we just... It, that's that's what's so disappointing, hey, that because is. you think this issue would have caused that kind of outrage, but it
3: didn't. I mean, people are dying. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, I don't know how to how it gets more serious than that. But anyway, so we didn't want to open the show like that, but it always ends up going like that. And it's my fault. <laughs> so I was having a crisis, and on Sunday I went to dinner with George and our friend Finn. Hi, Finn, if you're listening. And I was just, you know, bemoaning life. And George said, "Hey, you should listen to this podcast." Um, And I don't know if we're allowed to give podcast recommendations while we're literally telling you to be listening to us on podcast, but I'm going to anyway. (laughs) Sorry, Gab. Um, This podcast, is the series is called The Radical Therapist, and it's episode number 15, and it's called Activism in Therapy. And I've only listened to, like, 20 minutes or so of it, but it was so helpful. And so if anybody listening is feeling a bit hopeless or a bit, like, isolated or burnt out, I guess, um, have a listen because it's, um, it kind of ties in with a lot of what my comrades have been saying to me lately, which is that we have to be like, solidarity is the most important thing and it's the best way to combat burnout. And it's not, um, you know, they say in this podcast that vicarious trauma is based on the idea that your clients hurt you or that the people you're working for hurt you. Um, and they blame clients or, you know, um, consumers or whatever for the suffering that is and it's completely the wrong way to go about it and what we should be looking for are the structures that don't allow us to do our work ethically and safely um and you know in a financially stable situation and all of those sorts of things so um witnessing each other as activists and sharing the load and kind of recognizing what each person can do individually to the best of their ability and making sure that they um, are supported in doing that. Mm. All of these kinds of, like, we need to take back um, what the structures of capitalism and patriarchy and those sorts of things have taken from us, I guess, yeah. is, is the point. And so it, I just, um, obviously they word it so much better than that. So please have a listen. Um, the Radical Therapist is the podcast and it's just really helpful.
1: Yeah. And uh, I think, yeah, if you're listening and you have good self-care... Mm. Or any ideas about that. Mm. But yeah, it is it's such an amazing idea in terms of self care being more of a communal thing and a thing around solidarity. Yeah. And w- the person who recommended it to me mentioned that, you know, one sort of act of self care could be validating what someone else is doing and saying to them like that work that you did or that, you know, mm. some in whatever area that they're involved with and kind of saying how incredible that was or how much of an impact that might have had.
3: Yeah. It's an act of self care.
1: Absolutely. You're, you're caring for each other as opposed to this is my individual I'm just going to and
3: And you're reinforcing the idea of community. I think, like, and I always think about it in terms of Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks, who are two people who obviously did fantastic work and was really important, but they are only two people in a movement that was thousands and thousands of people. You know, change doesn't happen individually and change doesn't happen because, you know... We didn't get the yes vote just because of Sally Rug. Sally Rugg was super important, but there were tens of thousands of people making calls and doing work and mm. that sort of thing. And we don't see those people, and so you have to witness each other's work because mm. other people, like it, it gets lost in the crowd, yeah, and it can be really easy to feel like your work means nothing or you're screaming into the void.
1: Yep, mm. absolutely great podcast.
3: Gosh, great podcast! <laughs> I'm really amped up for today. Should we go to some news headlines yes, before I let's release?
1: Let's do Research has found that women are half as likely to receive adequate treatment For heart attacks than men, the Guardian has reported The study conducted by the Medical Journal of Australia Involved cardiac specialists and researchers across 41 hospitals They examined treatment received by men and women suffering from ST elevation myocardiac infraction, or STEMI for short Which is a lethal type of heart attack involving sudden and complete blockage of blood to the heart the study also found that women are less likely to be prescribed preventative, preventive medications or be referred for cardiac rehabilitation. And also six months after being discharged from hospital are twice as likely to die or suffer from further heart problems. University, University of Sydney professor Clara Chow The study's senior author has commented that they are quite surprised by the the study's findings and that they suspect unconscious bias in the health system is a factor in the discrepancy of treatment. Researchers are calling for further studies to identify the causes of this discrepancy. Syrian Volunteer Civil Defence Forces, the White Helmets and other Syrian refugees will be granted asylum in the UK, Germany and Canada in a deal made between Jordan and the three countries. The evacuation of the refugees from Syria to Jordan was facilitated by the Israeli Defence Force. Benjamin Netanyahu has commented on Twitter that several days ago President Trump contacted me, as did Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau and others, and requested that we assist in evacuating hundreds of White Helmets from Syria. These are people who have saved lives and whose lives were in danger, are therefore authorised their transfer via Israel to other countries as an important humanitarian gesture. Jordan has closed its borders to Syrian asylum seekers, claiming its refugee camps are full, housing more than 600,000 Palestinian Syrian refugees and hundreds of thousands more that are unregistered. This is obviously an interesting development in light of what has been termed the apartheid bill that was passed last week. Mm -hmm. And just, I don't know, it's kind of bizarre and disturbing the way that that people can justify why certain bodies and lives matter yeah. over mm-hmm. others and can sort of rally around some sort of humanitarian crisis in this instance and um, be in, in inflicting so much violence on Palestinian people. Mm. It's Yeah, it's mm. very disturbing. Um, evidence has been put forth at the South Australian Royal Commission into the Murray-Darling Basin Plan last week by the Murray-Lower-Darling River's Indigenous Nations M-L-D-R-A-N, a traditional owner group. The submission states that the Water Act is inconsistent with Australia's international obligations under the Biodiversity Convention and the Ramsar Convention. MLDRIN Chair and Nari Man Rene Woods has commented that we are witnessing the real world impacts of excluding First Nations knowledge, culture and law from water planning and that the Royal Commission represents an important opportunity to air our concerns and present proposals for change to Australia's national water legislation. He also stated that the Water Act needs to be reformed to recognise and promote First Nations' distinctive attachment to and authority relating to waters of the Murray-Darling Basin.
5: love our 3CR Radical Radio t-shirts, and so do we. They're a bargain at $20 for adults and $15 for kids, and come in black, white, grey, and a cool light blue. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street or order by phoning 9419-8377. Or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one.
1: Do you want to learn new skills and open new career opportunities? AMES Australia is a leading education provider, offering government-funded courses in general English, aged care and work skills. Courses start in July, so call 13 26 37 now to sign up today or go to ames.net.au for more information. Ames Australia is a registered training organisation, TOID 0590. Ames Australia is a 3CR supporter. And we're back at Tuesday Breakfast with myself, George, Lauren and Anya. I'm going to play a track now um, and I just wanted to speak briefly about the song before I put it on. It's by an artist uh, called Genesis Orusu, I think he's from Canberra and um, I listened to it on the radio last week, I've been itching to play it for all of you for a whole week, it's been hard to hang on to it. Um, and when I listened to it on the radio, it was on PBS and the presenter meant, uh, spoke about Um, just quoted the artist because it's really interesting in terms of understanding like what the song's about Mm -hmm. Um, and the the track's called A Woman Are Men Um, And so what Owusu says is that it's not a love song. It's an ode to the female and all of her grace, elegance, nastiness, power, rebellion, boldness and ferocity. I didn't write this song as one of the nice guys. I didn't write it to show everyone that I'm the perfect man who has never disrespected a woman in his life or to be the poster boy, male feminist. I've been gross and misogynistic before. I've been a teenage boy. Sometimes I still have to catch myself from being susceptible to my inherent malconditioning. I didn't write this song as one of the nice guys. I wrote it as a man who is trying to understand and do better. Um, And so I wanted to dedicate this song to Jimmy, if you're listening, (laughs) and say that um, anyone can change and we should encourage it.
2: me grow. Grow, 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 grow. Let the world not spin you flip that thing and you make us grow.
1: Grow, 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 grow. so that was
3: uh, Genesis Owusu and a song called Our Woman Amen love it so now we're going to hear some audio from the rally for refugees um, on Saturday It was a rally um, because Manus and Nauru have now been open for five years. People have been, well, they've been open for longer, but people have been detained up there for five years. Um, So this is a vox pop with some members of the community and some excerpts of a speech by Behrouz Bushani. Say it loud,
2: say it clear. Refugees are welcome here. Say it loud, say it clear. Refugees
0: are welcome here. Now I'm asking all of you today to think back over the last five years. What have you done over that time? Finished studying, got a job, changed jobs, fell in love, started a family, retired. Whatever you've done, I bet you felt safe in doing it. As a mother of four, I had the joy of seeing my eldest child marry. In that time, 12 mothers received the devastating news their mothers, their sons had died under the hands of the Australian government through murder through
3: negligence and lack of proper health care I mean we're here today because it's been five years Um, and so while we're obviously very passionate and we care a lot about this issue it seems like the movement has not been effective in achieving its goal. Do you have any thoughts on why that is?
6: Um, I think it's really got to do with um, penetration to the union movement. The previous instance where we managed to defeat the policy back under Howard involved a lot of very serious union campaigning, and, very, and near the end, unions were mobilizing the members out on strike action uh, and mobilizing to the camps to, um, to, to, free the re- to free the refugees. So there was a very palpable sense that not only would the government face protest action if... They continue to abuse refugees like this, but they would face strike action and damages to profits. Like, there was a very serious sense that uh, we would attempt to force the Labour Party from the bottom up to make it politically impalatable for them to have this sort of policy. I think we need a repeat of that, because at the moment, if we stay with um, uh, this sort of protest strategy and, and don't advance any further, then um, we can have some small victories, like the like last month we heard the case of Ali. Um, he unfortunately died offshore, but we, we managed to... Pro, uh, We managed to, through public pressure, convince the government to have his body at least flown flown over for proper burial procedures. And there's been several other cases where uh, (coughs) individual deportations have been stopped. But if we want the policy to die, then labor has to shift. Yeah.
7: Um, Well, one of of the interesting things, I think, um, is that uh, our refugee policy is a real inspiration for the far right around the world. It's a bit of a condemnation when you have uh, actual neo-Nazis across Europe who are drawing inspiration from our government. I think it indicates how urgent it is for all of us to be active and on the streets on this issue, yeah.
3: So you're here with the CFMEU, or under the flag of. Yep. Why are you here today, and is this representative of the union's stance um, on refugees?
7: Yes, the union has uh, formally adopted, uh, endorsed the, the rally today. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, our, our union, going right back through the history of the building industry, um, has a proud history of, you know, defending... Uh, the, the dispossessed and in this case it's people who have been dispossessed of their country whether they're in flight from war or environmental decay and degradation um, CFMU is very aware that the role of First World developed nations um, in the destruction of countries overseas and, and involvement in the wars that are going on there have caused people to take flight so to that extent you know, we, we show solidarity with those people given the treatment by the Australian government uh, of them and many of the people who make up um, the Billings Reunions, uh, their parents, um, you know, came from other countries, many of them in flight from, from uh, totalitarianism and war and so forth. So, you know, we've got a long, proud history of that. And, you know, yeah, we're here today just to make, make that known to people. Yeah.
3: And um, look, we're here five years in a row now, protesting the same, same shit. Yeah. Um, what do you think needs to change for things to change? In terms of our movement, or what pressure needs to be put differently, or
7: well, I guess you know, and you see it every day in the building industry. You know, it's like refugeeism and and, and uh, you know, war and, and climate emergency. I mean, they're, they're they're symptoms. They're not causes. And we've got to start looking at the causes of these things. We've got to, otherwise there's no, not at all. <laughs> and and yeah, I mean, there's no. There's no getting around that fact. We've got to look at the at the causes um, for for the world's problems. And, and at the moment, I mean, when you when you look at that, what do you see? I mean, there's, you know, corporate capitalism is is running rampant. There are very few regulations that hold them back anymore. Um, the military is the largest industry in the world. Nearly 20 billion, sorry, 20 trillion dollars in 2017. The, the military impact on the global economy: 20 trillion Australian dollars. Like, you know. We've lost two thirds of all wildlife in the last 50 years. I mean, these these are symptomatic of a of, of an economic um, decline, economic crisis, and so you know, unions and the role we play in as the voice of democracy within the economies globally, um, it, it's it, that that role we play is urgent. And so, linking up with the other social movements that are fighting all of the symptom picture, of, of you know, of a, of a decaying capitalism, basically, I think it's uh, I think that's where we're at. So we've got to really start. Looking at the social movements linking up um, in, into a, a, a real people's movement, um, linking with the unions, you know, linking across the social movements, and you know, dealing with the causal issues.
0: Absolutely. So, what brings you here today? Ah, the... oh, look, I can't believe that we still have refu- uh, people who are true refugees on, in detention in an island off our shores, when we have room, we have the wealth, we have the means by which we could... And, and we also have many people in the wider community who would be willing to give these people um, safety and residence and that kind of thing until they get you know, their papers and all that. Uh, we just, just don't seem to have the bulk of uh, political support to turn it around and perhaps not even the people support. There are a lot of people against the detention but it's not um, it's not translating into you know hundreds of thousands in the streets enough for for the government to think they've got to do something about it. Yeah. Yeah. And what about the turnout today? Do you think this is a good Um, good number?
2: Yeah.
0: I mean I... I would love the streets to be crowded with people saying, For, you know, whatever you do, this is, you know, this is five years of this. And people are dying. People are losing hope. They shouldn't, it was bad enough to have to leave their own country, let alone be imprisoned on a, on an island. Because we, we're proud of not letting them in because they came by boat. How crazy. Half the people who came here originally, we all did, came by boat. You know, like, only the Aboriginal people have the right to say what are you doing here (laughs) it's a it's an emergency we should all be taking to the streets i agree i agree would
2: either of you like to comment as well oh i
8: suppose i just want to say that i'm ashamed to be part of this country at the moment that it's just really appalled at how we are treating these people whose mental health psychological health is being destroyed day by day to the point of suicide and it's our fault you know and people leave because they have to they don't leave because they've got another reason and you just have to read personal stories of people in detention and the horror of that indefinite not knowing when a decision is being made how it destroys people bit by bit so i'm ashamed to be an australian really and um yeah and i too would love a lot more people to be here than today but i think we just have to keep chipping away and letting politicians know that there are huge numbers of people who are horrified at what, in our name, they are doing. And they're just political. It's for their own political means. And unfortunately, it's all side of politics. This is yeah. what's appalling. So it does make you feel very... Ashamed. ashamed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah.
9: I am talking with you from Manus, Island after five years of living in harsh conditions and so much suffering. For years we have been spoken to you about our experiences here in Manus Island and now in 2018, the cruel policy of 19 July 2013 is still damaging people. We have had many dark and difficult days, especially those days when we have lost our friends. So, 19 July doesn't just commemorate the introduction of the policy. It is also a day of remembering those whose lives have been lost. Those young men who were just seeking freedom and instead found the cruelty and violence of the Australian state. And those of us experienced this suffering Wondering if we will ever be free to make our lives somewhere in peace and security and free to see our families again. But our hope is with you to raise your voices beyond this street to keep the campaign growing, especially as Australia get into an important election to talk to your politicians and neighbors, and encourage them to act for kindness and compassion. If not for us, then for an Australia, they can be proud of. We must continue putting the government under pressure until the day when they officially announce the end of this cruel offshore processing policy. Thank you very much.
3: So that was Behrouz Bushani, um, a journalist currently detained on Manus Island, who was speaking at the Rally for Refugees in Nam on Saturday, the 21st of July. And now we are going to hear um, the first part of an interview um, that was done a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago now, with um, Dr. Susan Carland, who is, um, well, she's many things, um, but she has... In this instance, written a book that is based on her PhD thesis called Fighting Islam, and it's about um, how Muslim women fight sexism. And just before we hit play on the interview, I just want to let you know that um, the first her answer to the first question has um, unfortunately been abridged a little bit, and that was my fault because the software um, missed a chunk of her answer. So it's um, it's not a fulsome representation of what she said, but um, I think that the gist is there, and um, most of the answer is thankfully has been salvaged. So enjoy. So I thought we might give a, have a start with um, just talking about your book. So I really, really loved Finding His Farm, um, and I think it's a really important book for all feminists to read, and um, some men as well who don't consider themselves feminists could probably use a read of it as well. Um, could you give our listeners a bit of an overview of what it's actually about and how you came to publish it?
10: Sure. So the book uh, began life as my PhD thesis, Um, which was an investigation into the way Muslim women fight sexism within the Muslim community and as I was writing my PhD I became really frustrated and thought well I've got all this evidence and data and research specifically on this I can't really sit on it and then complain about how the conversation hasn't changed um, plus, I knew that at least some of the women that I'd interviewed, um, and then certainly afterwards when I checked with them to make sure it was okay that I included their um, stories in my book, they wanted their stories out there as well. They wanted. Um, they themselves were frustrated with the, you know, on the one hand, the way non-Muslims viewed Muslim women and the sort of the pity and the scorn and all the standard tropes and stereotypes. But they were also frustrated often with the way the Muslim community was talking about Muslim women and sexism, sexism as well. So there was a de- desire from the women that I interviewed for, um, you know, content to be out there that helped, you know, in some way try to change this infuriatingly trapped narrative. And so I thought, well, I should try to get it published. So that's, that's how it started and that's how it ended up as a book.
3: Mm. Um, and... So on that talking about the content of your book what were some of the ways that these women told you that they themselves are fighting sexism
10: So I um I interviewed a a, diff- a range of women I interviewed theologians activists writers and bloggers to get a you know a good sort of cross section I I guess of women and the different ways that they were engaging with the issues and of course a lot of them really existed across a number of the categories like most of the theologians would have considered themselves activists as well. Um, you know, so there was, you know, there was a bleeding into each other. Um, and so I I just asked them about the work they did, uh, why they did it, what motivated them, um, who were their supporters, who were their detractors, you know. Just, I really wanted to record their stories because, um, you know, as I said, it felt like no one seemed to believe these women existed. When I'd Often when non-Muslims would ask me when I was doing my PhD, when they'd ask me, oh, what's your PhD on? And I'd, I'd tell them, invariably, the response would be one of shock, like, oh, well, we can't believe that these women even exist, let alone that there would be enough to fill a book. And when I tried to say, well, actually, there's you know, there's far more than I could ever interview. And also, this is not a new phenomenon. This isn't just something that suddenly has popped up because Um, Muslims have got these ideas from the West. This is something that has always existed within the Muslim community, right from the earliest days of Islam. There have been Muslim women who have been fighting against sexism and using their religion as the tool to fight against that sexism. um, People just couldn't believe it. But similarly, the flip side as well of that was that there was this attitude within the Muslim community that um, women who identified as feminist or Um, were actively trying to fight against sexism, there was a bit of scepticism and even disdain towards them as well. So often the women that I spoke to could feel sort of trapped on on both sides or um, uh, misconstrued or not supported on on both sides of the equation. So to answer your question, some of these women were theologians, so they would be um, engaging with the sacred texts in Islam, like the Quran or the, the Hadith, which are the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad, and, um, bringing a, you know, a, 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 critical or a feminist or a female positive lens to the interpretation of these texts. Some of them were activists, so they were working in areas like, um, domestic violence or women's access to the mosque or, or those sort of things. Others were writers who were just, who were writing, um, books, fiction and non-fiction to try to, um, uh, change the conversation and just add some nuance to the, to the debate. And of course, then there were the bloggers who, you know, do
3: what bloggers do mm. I really enjoyed um, I mean all of the descriptions of the women just you know had me in raptures thinking how wonderful they were but the um, the idea of the reinterpretation of the Quran and the hadith with a feminist lens I just thought was so fascinating um, mm-hmm. because it, it it is isn't it religious texts are all about interpretation um, in so many ways, and this was mm. so, yeah such a positive way of um, of reclaiming that faith and and what that means.
10: Well, um, and also reminding not just reminding everyone, Muslims and non-Muslims, that even the interpretations that we have today, they have all come through a human lens. They've all just come through generally men's mm. lenses. Mm-hmm. And why is that? Why are we we need to be very careful not to deify men's interpretations of things. Um, and so. And also for a lot of the theologians um, that I spoke to, they also were trying to re-establish that there had been this tradition of women interpreting texts that had been lost along the way. So again, that they didn't see this as something new, and historically it's not something new. But, you know, over the last sort of 500-odd years, women doing this had sort of disappeared. And so they felt they were um, re-establishing something that had originally been there.
3: Mm. Yeah, and you can see that in Christianity as well and so many other religions, that just that erasure of the female theological power and um and work. Right. Um so it's interesting that you're talking about the um the the sort of struggles that women face within of people looking at their work from outside the community but also inside. Because something else that you talk about in the book um is something that we have had talked about quite a lot on Tuesday breakfast, and that is um, sort of the reluctance of people to speak out about issues in their own communities when there is already, you know, negative perceptions of their community from external other communities, I guess. So we're talking about Islamophobia, particularly in relation to this. Um, yeah. And so I'm interested in your thoughts about how women um, who do want to speak out about sexism. Within Islam, can do so when they might feel constrained by Islamophobia or or not believed or something like that.
10: Yeah, it's it's a really it was a really difficult one for the women that I interviewed. All of the women that I interviewed, I asked them, "How do you do?" It's the term that is given to it, and as you said, this is not something that's unique to the Muslim community at all. Pretty much every minority community can um, relate to this in some way. And, in fact, the first time it was sort of documented in academic circles was with African-American women in the 70s. It's called the double bind, and this idea that um, uh, people in minority communities can be sort of bound on both sides. So, you know, for example, if you are a, a, a gay man, for example, you can feel that... Um, perhaps if there are issues in in the gay male community, if you want to speak publicly about them, you can, in fact, be reinforcing negative stereotypes that people may have about gay men, for example. Um, so the issue is also what do you do? Do you speak about it publicly, knowing that you may reinforce these negative stereotypes people have about gay men? Or do you say nothing and then either try to deal with it within the community, but then maybe that can cause some issues to fester and not be dealt with, you know... Um, as thoroughly as they should, it's the same issue for Muslim women. So, for example, um, you know, if a Muslim woman wants to talk about domestic violence, it's a really fraught topic because what does she do? If she speaks about it publicly, it reinforces all these ideas of Muslim men being oppressive wife-beaters, which is a very common stereotype. It also reinforces this idea that Muslim women are these submissive victims um, so no, they know that if I speak about this publicly, I am simply adding fuel to this, this fire that exists. And it's not just um, something that's a bit uncomfortable. We need to know that Islamophobia like, has been um, studied, and, you know, as academically we have studied this, and we know for a fact not only do Islamophobic attacks happen, but it's visible Muslim women who are far more likely to be the brunt or bear the brunt of Islamophobic attacks so Muslim women who are identifiable as being Muslim so they might wear the headscarf or the face veil or whatever they are more likely to then be abused physically or verbally on the street so it's understandable that these women would be reluctant to do anything that could fuel these negative perceptions on the one hand but then on the other hand like every other community the Muslim community of course has issues with domestic violence Mm -hmm. like every other community in Australia so if they, if we don't speak about it publicly and try to deal with it, then this really toxic issue can fester. And so, these are things that sometimes cannot just be dealt with within the community and need outside help, but mm. the fear is of bringing in that outside help. that can actually make the problem worse in terms of the Islamophobia that's dealt with. And that's why it's called a double bind. It's like being caught between a rock and a hard place. And the women I interviewed um, all dealt with it differently. Some of them said, you know, this really is an issue and I have to think about every word I say publicly and how it will be received and what will be the ramifications and those sort of things. Other women said, look, I know that this is how people will perceive and I know it could even make things worse, but my commitment to truth means that I have to say that this is what's going on. But none of them said, oh, I've never thought about this. This is something I'd never even considered. They were all aware of it. They just had to choose how to grapple with it differently, Mm -hmm. either to um, push through it or to at times remain silent about things that were important to them because they it was this constant weighing up where will the greatest damage be done by me speaking about this issue? Mm.
3: So so frustrating um, yeah i am um, I'm not sure what the answer is either, but i um, I think it was really powerfully done in your book to talk about the yeah, different ways that they mm, sorry
10: it's it's something I've thought about a lot as well because I think obviously, like I said, it's not unique to the Muslim community, and so Mm. it's made me think, well, how am I, obviously I'm a Muslim woman, so this is a community I'm part of, but how am I, of all the communities that I'm an outsider to, Mm. how could I inadvertently be making things harder for those people? So, for example, how could I be inadvertently, by the negative stereotypes I have, be making it harder for, say, Aboriginal women to try to deal with the issues that they might want to talk about or bring up or challenge? It's, It's something that I think all of us need to be conscious of in terms of... Um, how we could totally obliviously be making things more difficult for any community that is trying to grapple with issues within their own community um, and how what can we try to do to make things easier and more supportive. So if someone does want to talk about an issue of domestic violence or, or whatever it is, mm. that they can feel confident that they can bring that issue to the public sphere and just be met with... Um, compassion and understanding and support and people saying tell us how we can help you with this and not adding negative judgment or negative stereotypes to an already very difficult issue Mm,
3: yeah so that was part one of an interview uh, that i did with dr susan carland a few months ago um, and we will hear part two later in the show but now we are just going to go to an interview that george did with lavanya devaraja no Yes, did I say that correctly, Anya? Okay. Um, Who is from the Tamil Refugee Council, and this was also on Saturday at the Rally for Refugees.
5: Sorry, I didn't catch your name. Lavanya Tavaraja. And so you're speaking at this event today, is that right? Yeah, I'm speaking uh, uh, for Tamil Refugee Council. So what's happening these days? So, yeah, Tamil Refugee Council uh, was... Uh, doing refugee works with the Th- tamil refugees so like last week we had a few deportations uh, and the dilipin deportation and 17 others with dilipin and yeah so yeah that's i'm talking about those things and he was also just arrested in, in sri lanka as well is that right once he landed in the airport he has been arrested and he was with the custody for a day or two and after that he has been released
1: and it's just not right when they knew that that was going to happen
5: yeah but what they say is like it uh, they left the country illegally and they will be arrested and inquired what why did they leave the country and other things yeah but but it is not proper way to do like he's already in the stress so he already left the family and nine 11 months old child and they are again again they are going they arrested him and they keeping him in the custody is not the right way to do it's not a human do you think that i mean we've been here for five years in a row protesting this same issue
3: um what do you think we need to change for the politicians to change their minds from your
5: perspective what can we do better in our region, uh, we need to change everything totally the way we protest so we, uh, we normally we protest like this in huge number and we just leave when they, when there is any deportation we, there's no one so when the deliberate deportation was happened in Sydney there was like four or five people in front of the detention center so but here we can see how many are in support of refugees. So we are not able to gather when, when, there, when we need a direct, any direct actions. We, they, we, can't, we are not able to gather together. So we need to be in contact and we need to sign up with any emergency protests so, so that we, can, we know what's happening and we can gather as soon as possible to stop all these yeah. stops happening. That's such a good
1: point. We should really yeah, make sure that we go when people are at risk or being deported
3: yeah yeah definitely and that will it sends a stronger message if somebody is there watching you every time you're trying to do something than just once every year yeah
5: and have
1: you yourself come to Australia as a refugee
5: no but I was born as a refugee in Tamil Nadu refugee camp so I spent more than 22 years in a refugee camp and my relatives are still in the refugee camp in Tamil Nadu. yeah and are, are they wanting to come here to Australia? Uh, no, they are not interested, like, Australia is not anymore the good country to support refugees. So they are having bit freedom there, comparing to this big country. Yeah. Thank you
3: very much. That's okay. And so that was Lavanya sorry, from the Tamil Refugee Council, and we will hear some more from her later in the show. But now we are going to head to some community announcements.
10: I'm Helen Razor, but that's deeply irrelevant. What is relevant is that
11: you're listening to 3CR on... What's that frequency again, dear? 855. I told you, Helen. 855. And what
8: is relevant is that you're not listening to that other crap. So well done.
12: Rumination 3CR's Rooming House and Homeless Persons Issues program, featuring information on health and housing services, as well as live local guests, artists, and performers. From our unsung community, join us at 12 p.m. on Thursday on 3CR 855 (laughs) a.m.
3: Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. You're here with George, Anya and myself, Lauren, and we have a very special in-studio guest right now.
4: This is super exciting. It We've is. got Mario Pazica. Am I, am I pronouncing it right? Yes, yes. you are.
2: <laughs> Good job. Um,
4: who's here in the studio to talk to us about um, your show, Chronically Chilled. Mm. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for inviting me. It's on great. On this cold, deary day. Um, so let's just jump in. Can you mm. tell us about your show, Chronically Chilled?
13: Yeah, so um, Chronically Chilled is a monthly show um, the first Wednesday of every month, mm-hmm. um, and it's about, it's discussing chronic and invisible illness. Um, so, uh, I co-host with Maurice, um and we, we have guests on, we have discussions, talk about topics and themes mm. um, related to chronic and invisible illness. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah.
4: Sounds great. Um, and how did it all begin? Uh,
13: that's a bit of a story. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, um about two years ago, I had a really serious kind of medical kind of crash, mm-hmm. um, and it meant that I couldn't work anymore, mm-hmm. so I kind of lost all capacity to do all that stuff, but I wanted to kind of get involved with something, um, and I thought, oh, three is maybe something that I can go and volunteer, mm-hmm. um, and I literally, when I say volunteer, I was just kind of doing, wanting to do reception or make coffees, or I didn't mm-hmm. really care, I just kind of wanted to be involved Kind of with the community mm. um, because chronic illness, you can—it's very isolating at times, mm. um, especially when, in my case, at the time, I kind of wasn't going to work and all that stuff. So, I came here to to see what opportunities there were. Mm. Um, somehow ended up in training to present. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it to everyone. I know it happens to everyone. I'm just like, how did I end up here? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I actually walked into the training and I sat next to Maurice mm. um, and kind of through the training we figured out that we had kind of similar stuff going on. Mm. We've both got heart disease um, and we kind of just got talking and figured out that we've got the same medical team mm. and there's all these kind of parallels and stuff that was going on. So um, I hadn't thought about doing a show on chronic illness or anything. I wasn't even sure what I was going to do. Mm. Um, but we just got talking and thought, there's not much out there mm. talking yeah. about chronic illness and invisible illness as well. Yeah. So we thought maybe we can put together a show and stuff. Yeah. Um, and we thought let's do it monthly just to make it be sustainable for ourselves. Mm. So, yeah, that's how it kind of mm. came about.
4: What are the odds? It's like a sign from the universe, but yeah, it's know, one of those things, that
13: yeah, yeah, I was just like, what yeah. <laughs> yeah,
4: um so it's been two years
13: uh, the show got a, the show took a while to get going, yeah, um, so I think we're s- our first show was in December last year, uh, yeah, so because it's monthly, it's literally it just feels really new still, mm. <laughs> so yeah,
4: yeah, and how have you found the journey so far?
13: yeah it's been good um i yeah, I'm someone who's kind of very critical of themselves, so I kind of just mm. um, yeah, but I think I think um, yeah, it's going well, yeah. I think it just feels really new because we are only on air for half an hour every month, mm-hmm. so um yeah, it's kind of it's just getting a hang of it all, and yeah. you know, but we're hoping to have guests on um really regularly and got some. Hopefully some good people lined up Mm. in the next few months. So, yeah, Yeah, it's exciting.
4: That is exciting. Um, And what's been your favourite part of hosting the show and being part of the 3CR family generally?
13: Um, As you all know, 3CR is just such a welcoming place. Um, Mm. It's just you kind of just feel like home when you walk through the door kind of stuff. Mm. And I felt it really early, and I'm sure you're all nodding as well. So Mm. um, in that way, you know, everybody's so supportive, we kind of just came up with this idea and everyone just said, just go with it, like mm. run with it. So that could, that's that been really good. Um, in terms of, yeah, I, I think it's just um, being lucky enough and having the privilege to, to kind of interview people and to kind of hear their stories and kind of hear their perspectives. Mm. I think that's been my favourite thing. Mm. Um, yeah, because it's, yeah you just get to listen to some really smart people yeah, <laughs> talk yeah. about some really smart <laughs> things. So <laughs> for me, yeah, for me, I just, that, that's the part I enjoy. Yeah,
4: and it's like a self-discovery process as well.
13: Yeah, and and I think um, disability broadly, but chronic, um, mm. chronic illness, I think everybody is on their own kind of journey mm. because disability is really, really broad in terms of everybody's experiences. Mm. Um, yeah, like yeah. It, it is kind of, everybody has that different experience and it's kind of mm. yeah nice to, to hear from others around.
4: Yeah, and I guess, what are your thoughts on how the media currently portrays uh, or represents the voices of people with chronic and invisible illnesses?
13: Um, not very well, mm. um, not very accurately, I should say. It kind of mirrors how society views chronic illness in some ways. Mm. Um, It's seen as a very individual problem. So rather than a community kind of problem where there's community care. Mm. um, I I was listening as I was driving in and you were talking about self-care and how self-care is a very individual thing. Mm. Um, I think kind of chronic illness is the same. Mm. It's kind of like, okay, you've got this illness, go, go and... Kind of look after yourself, sort yourself out, kind of stuff like that. Mm. So, um, if you look at how it's portrayed in the media, it's very much an individual thing as well. Mm. And it's also very limiting. So, it's either this story of kind of, you know, inspiration of this Mm. person overcoming and all this kind of stuff, Mm. or it's just tragedy and, you know, this person died. Mm. So, it's very kind of limiting in terms of it, Um, and it's usually portrayed in a way that it's actually not for people with chronic illness. It's actually for the general community Mm. to feel something, (laughs) you know, it's either feel sad or, Mm. you know, a feel-good story, stuff like that.
4: Yeah, and there's usually a sort of an end point to those sorts of stories, like um, there's an illness, and then the person overcomes the illness, and then happily ever after... Um, you know and we often forget that it's it's a journey and that a lot of um, the community is also part of that journey mm. and that never gets represented I mean that's how I, I see it is that
13: yeah totally yeah. it totally is like that and And, yeah, that kind of limiting way of, like, there has to be an outcome, Mm. Um, it's actually not the reality for most people, Mm. and for me as well. It's been an ongoing thing. I was born with with my chronic illness, so it's been an ongoing thing for me. Mm. Um, So there isn't an easy cure and all that stuff. But I think along with that, there's some pretty kind of... um, dangerous messages, maybe, Mm. um, around, you know, you should always fight, Mm. you should always have a positive attitude, you know, this kind of stuff. Mm. And what you were saying before as well, it kind of misses the context of people's lives um, and kind of misses the reality and doesn't really talk about the struggle that people go through every day. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, that's the part that I think is missing. Yeah. Um,
4: And the intersection between, like, class and race and how that affects illnesses. Yeah,
13: and just the structural challenges Mm. of having a chronic illness. Mm. Like, um, it's mostly portrayed in the media um, where the person is usually white Mm. and usually has a lot of resources Mm. and is well-off and can afford to get treatments and all this kind of stuff where, you know, Finances aren't really discussed, like mm. you know, the fact that people with chronic illness and disability have a much less um, ability to work, mm. um, so there, there's huge unemployment and underemployment mm. for people with chronic illness and, in, and disabilities, um, so there's that. And then with that is, like, there's a lot of people living in poverty. Mm. Um, For women, women are more likely to be victims of violence Mm. um, and less likely to be heard Mm. in the medical system. I think there was a story about the Hutt Foundation or, yeah, they did, like, some research. Yeah, we were just talking about it this morning. So there's all that stuff that just doesn't get talked about, Mm. the more structural stuff around how do we actually support people better that are... Mm. kind of going through chronic illness.
4: Yeah, Um, and I can't let you go without talking about the the reason my health record system and what that means for people with chronic and invisible illnesses. How do you think that will affect um, people?
13: Um, They've got major trust issues, Mm. Um, and there's obviously a lot of trust and privacy issues around it. Mm. Um, It was originally supposed to be an opt-in Kind of system, and then all of a sudden it's now an opt out system. So it kind of already got me a bit suspicious about the whole thing. Mm. So there's that, and then there's privacy concerns around what information is going to be shared, who's going to see the information, um, how much power the kind of user has in terms of all that kind of stuff. Um, so it's something that I think could be a good idea. Mm. But I think that the government is kind of not is not is kind of in, enforcing it on people, and I think that is kind of meaning that yeah people just aren't trusting it, mm-hmm. and for good reason. In some ways, there's a lot to be explained still around it, mm. um, and and yeah, so
4: and we haven't been given much time to sort of wrap no. our heads around it either.
13: Which is a bit concerning. Yeah, and, 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 you know, for people who have got complex stuff going on, mm. they're the ones that are going to have the most information shared on there. So, you know, um, I think, yeah, there needs to be more conversation around it and a bit more time and stuff. Mm. But I heard there was lots of people struggling to opt out. Mm. They were trying to get on the system and it wasn't working oh, and all that stuff. So yeah. it actually made me think about kind of this government seems to put in some systems that are really oppressive, Mm. um, such as Centrelink, which is just awful. The system set up for people seeking asylum. Mm. Um, And when I saw people having trouble opting out of this, I just thought, this is another system that's made for you to just give up, yeah, because that's what they're designed to do. Mm. They're designed to make you just give up and it's all too hard and stuff like that. And And just
4: accept things the way they are.
13: And just accept the things yeah. the way they are. This mm. is all too hard. Yep. People with chroni- like it's people with chronic illness or disability. It takes a lot of energy to navigate those systems, mm. um, and unjust systems make people sick, like literally. Mm. So, um, yeah. So there's there's all of that kind of stuff. Mm. And I was reading in the Guardian yesterday about it, and they said. Um, They said in the UK there was pretty much the same system that was brought in a few years ago. Mm. It was called um, Care Data. And what ended up happening is despite all the government guarantees and all that kind of stuff, insurance companies and drug companies ended up buying a whole bunch of data. Mm. So they they actually had to shut it down. So there's also those concerns around there's a whole bunch of data there. Whenever there's data, people want to get their hands on it. Mm. Who's going to get their hands on it? Insurance companies are already lining up saying we want to kind of get this data, stuff like that. So there's huge concerns. But like I said, I think it could be a positive thing. Mm. And I'm kind of leaning opting out, but I don't necessarily recommend that for everybody. Yeah. Because I think for some people that actually might be really helpful, Mm. depending on your circumstances. So... I think, for everybody to kind of really talk to their kind of medical professionals, all that mm-hmm. stuff, mm-hmm. and just to kind of really start interrogating around what data is on there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think if they're going to do it, mm. like, we need to have the same information as what everybody else is seeing. Yeah. So We'll that's, have to wait and see, I think. That's the limit. Like, yeah, there's a lot of kind of questions and stuff around yeah. it. Yeah, yeah.
4: Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for coming in today, Mario. That, no worries. That was amazing. And maybe you could tell our listeners how to listen to your show, when to listen to your show.
13: Yeah, so we're the first Wednesday of every month at 6 p.m., so mm-hmm. next Wednesday we, we will be on. Um, you can catch us on um, podcast as well, so we're on iTunes. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you go to the 3CR website and search for us, you'll find our page and all of our shows are on there as well. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much.
0: 2018 marks 20 years since senior traditional owner Yvonne Margarula invited supporters to come to mirror our country within Kakadu National Park to blockade the proposed Jabaluka uranium mine. Thousands answered the call. The mine was stopped. To commemorate this extraordinary anniversary, Me Aboriginal Corporation and the Australian Conservation Foundation have produced a gorgeous commemorative calendar. Standing strong, Jabaluka 20 years, is a piece of history you don't want to miss. Order your copy today at mirar.net. That's M-I-R-A-R-R dot net. A 3CR supporter. You're
5: listening to...
12: 3CR Radio. Rumination. 3CR's Rooming House and Homeless Persons Issues program. Featuring information on health and housing services, as well as live local guests, artists, and performers from our unsung community. Join us at 12 on Thursday
11: on 3CR 855 AM 3CR oh, wow. are selling Kafir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron Palestine all profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry these are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au/slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours.
1: back at Tuesday Brekkie so on the line we have Sam French who is the Senior Policy Officer at People with Disability Australia and she's on the line this morning to talk to us about some recent disability employment reforms that came into effect earlier this month. Hi Sam thank you very much for joining us this morning.
11: Hi thanks for inviting me
1: on. (laughs) Um, So, before we get into the DES, can you tell us a bit about your organisation and also the the Disabled People's Organisations Australia, or DPO for short?
11: Sure. Um, So, my organisation is the People with Disability Australia. We're a national disability rights and advocacy organisation. We're part of Disabled People's Organisation Australia. Uh, Very long name, uh, but basically that's an alliance of four... Different um, disabled people's organisations, which are organisations that are led by and constituted of people with disability. Um, so, and we, uh, those organisations are First People's Disability Network, uh, National Ethnic Disability Alliance, Women with Disability Australia, and as I mentioned, my organisation, People with Disability Australia. And those organisations have come together to represent people with disability across Australia, people with all types of disability. We're what we call a cross-disability organisation. Um, and to, uh, we're funded by the Commonwealth Government to um, promote, protect and advance rights of people with disabilities, but really to provide a voice of our own. Mm. It sounds like a
1: very overarching service and very important uh, in terms of issues concerning the NDIS and also this Disability Employment um, Service. So the federal government reforms to Disability Employment Services commenced at the beginning of this month. Can you talk us through what the DES program is and what
11: these reforms are? Okay, well, the DES program, um, that stands for Disability Employment Service Program, um, has that program itself has been running for many years, uh, but the reforms to the DES um, started in 2015, so it has been going for some years. And organisations such as ours, um, and including our... Um, colleagues from Inclusion Australia and the Australian Network on Disability have been working um, very closely with government on, those, on that reform process. So um, disability employment services are basically services that are funded by the Commonwealth to provide to, or to assist people with disability to find and keep a job. So some of the things they'll do is um, assist people with um get, Getting resumes together, looking at identifying jobs um, that might be suitable for people and um, getting those people ready for work, and some of them also provide ongoing support where needed um, that um that is what they're funded to do, but unfortunately, the performance of those services has been very poor. Uh, the employment rate of people with disabilities hasn't really changed in 20 years, and uh, which we we think is quite unacceptable. And um, you know, over 800 million is spent on these services a year, um, when the outcomes from these services are they're getting one out of 10 people that. Are registered with DES are getting a job or finding a job and are keeping that job for more than 12 months. So one out of 10 is a very, very poor um, outcome and what we're concerned about um, is that that people with disability are being required, the majority of people with disability that are um, uh, registered with DES are required to be registered. So they're meeting what they call their mutual obligations in order to Receive their uh, social services entitlements. Um, So so there are some voluntary um, DES participants um, or job seekers, but the majority tend to be what we call mutual obligations. So forced to go through a system which is broken and which is not really, which isn't delivering outcomes.
1: Mm, that's such a lot of money to only have one in ten in the program actually get a job and stay in a job. Why do you think that DES hasn't been very successful?
11: Oh, look, uh, there's it's, there's a range of um, reasons that would um, that we could point to. The, uh, look, I mean, you could look at internally at the DES, but um, I mean, struck uh, the context in which DES are operating are, you know there's still um, issues around employer attitudes, there's still lack of accessibility to workplaces, including inaccessible public transport, but also inaccessible premises, uh, lack of accessible information technology systems, and so on. Uh, but if you're looking, uh, more closely at the actual operation of DES, there's, um, you know, we've called for a need for national recognize skills and qualifications for DES workers employees um, or staff rather um, so you know increase knowledge and skills of those staff to know how to uh, make a very good job match. So not just trying to parachute people with disabilities into whatever jobs are there, but really do um, the skills to understand where the demand is, to understand the needs of employers and to be able to look at the jobs that are available and um, competently match the skills that people with disability can bring to those jobs and those workplaces. Um, so, you know, there's a whole range of um, barriers that still exist in our workplaces, but there's also issues around the actual um, operation of the desks themselves and the support that they might need to increase competence and confidence of their staff to work with people with disability and also um, to identify the skills and, and capabilities of people with disability rather than uh, having low expectations.
1: Mm, so it sounds like a more sort of individualised um, system is required to sort of get people in employment in jobs that are actually suitable for them.
11: Oh, absolutely. And look, um, we initially we were very positive and, and about the reforms and we still remain hopeful that the reforms will deliver better outcomes for people with disability. But there needs to be our, our support, is and was and, and still remains contingent on substantial investment by the Commonwealth to really look at what's working out there. Um, you know, there are some DES, that disability employment services DES, um, that are performing well. There are um, employers that are um, doing very well in terms of employing people with disability. So there are there are things that are working well, and we we believe that we need uh, greater investment to really. Pilot further best practice to bring those organisations and people together to share good practices. So not only the DES but employers, Um, the Australian Network on Disability has a network of employers that are trying to move towards increased employment or are doing are moving towards increased employment of people with disability. So how do we bring those employers um, together with DES with people with disability and really work towards? identifying where best practice is occurring and how to, how to um, invest in that, um, those good practices and to trial new and innovative practices. Hmm.
1: Well, thank you so much, Sam. I think that's a good point to wrap up on and um, we'll definitely have to keep up with what, what's happening with Disabled People's Organisations Australia and following those reforms and how they play out in the coming months. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank you. And so that was Sam French, the Senior Policy Officer at People with Disability Australia, and we were discussing the recent disability employment reforms um, that came into effect earlier this month.
7: Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a
0: population in which the indigenous, the poor, and the mentally ill are overrepresented
7: where isolation, humiliation degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison.
12: It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view. The people who work in the prison system would have another. And I think it's up to people to decide uh, where the truth is.
0: Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Do Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island, to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your Community Radio 3CR.
6: We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. <laughs> oh,
3: sorry about that noise. <laughs> uh, welcome back to Tuesday Day Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio uh, with the very professional myself, Lauren, George and Anya. We will now be hearing part two of an interview with Dr. Susan Carland about um, how Muslim women fight sexism um, and how misrepresented those ideas have been in, um, sorry, bear with us just one moment. Yep. So part two. Awesome. Something else that I was reading in your book that recalled some previous recent conversations we've been having on Tuesday Breakfast. Um, so one of the recent conversations, and I'll just lay it out first, was um, a woman who moved here with her parents from um, India. And she um, she is queer. And her parents, um, their idea of what homosexuality is like was very much tied up with their experiences of seeing it in Australia. And so it was a very westernised idea of homosexuality. So when they thought about Queerness or women being lesbians or anything like that, it was totally, totally entrenched in Western culture, um, and something that therefore to them appeared like a total rejection of their culture. Um, and mm-hmm. I'm sure you can guess where I'm going here. But um, when I was reading your book, this uh, what really struck me was, you know, the use of the word feminism. And this is a word that um, many of our listeners and myself included use have used since we were kids to describe ourselves and ideas that our mums have and all of that but so many of the women who I would describe externally as working from a feminist place um, in your book rejected that that idea that label and I would love to hear your thoughts on um, how much of that is linked to the westernization of feminism or or why those women chose to identify in different ways Um, yeah yeah
10: so I actually, I consciously did not ask the women in my book whether they would consider themselves feminists or not. I didn't actually ask them any questions about feminism, and it was a very um, considered decision. What I was interested in is the way uh, they fought sexism and how they dealt with sexism within the Muslim community. Now, obviously, I understand to a lot of listeners, they would think, well, of course, it's one and the same thing. Of course, you know, feminism and sexism. It's, you know, if you're fighting sexism, then then you're a feminist. But people need to be aware that feminist is not... I mean, even in Australia, of course, it's not a neutral term. Mm. But particularly in some countries overseas, it is an incredibly loaded term that in some countries is inextricably tied to uh, a history of colonisation. So when colonialism was brought to certain Middle Eastern countries, feminism came as part of the package And so in certain communities' minds, feminism is seen as something that is inherently antithetical and destructive towards traditional culture, to values that people held dear, um, like things like family and honouring the mother and and all those things that were seen as very positive. Feminism was, when it came with colonisation, it was also therefore inextricably tied to something foreign, and something Western, and something that was antithetical to their native culture or um, uh, traditional practices. Even things that people, a lot of people, including women, felt felt good about or were happy to uh, to participate in. Obviously, some that weren't. But also, at the same time as being tied to colonization, that um, so any negative things that were associated with colonization. Um, even things that may have looked at face value as being a positive thing, say for example um uh, more education, people at the time would look and see how it was generally only certain classes of people that were able to access those things that the benefits were very much for the upper classes, mm-hmm. but didn't really um, trickle down to the the lower or more working or rural class people so it became it was seen as something that was also very classist. Uh, then couple that with things like being forced to abandon the headscarf or, you know, groups of people who actually felt quite positively about this is our traditional culture and this is something that we see as valuable and good and what's being taken away from us by force. So feminism was tied up in, in the minds of a lot of people, certainly not all Muslim communities have experienced this, of course, but a, a number of countries around the world have. Um, when colonisation came in, either from external Western forces or by local governments who came with Western ideas, um, this was not seen as a positive thing. This was actually seen as something that was destructive and, um, as I said, foreign and, uh, you know, many, many elements of, of things that were not positive. Now, so when people bring up... And also, not just... Um, Western and foreign, but something that was inherently anti-religious and anti-Islam, something that had a very anti-Islam uh, mm. bent to it. A good example of this is Lord Cromer, who was the um, the British Consul General to Egypt, sort of in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And when he was there as, as Britain's representative, he explicitly said, I am here to liberate Muslim women. I am here to liberate them from Islam. Um, this was his his You know, message. So you've got to understand how this sounds, obviously, to people who are like, who's this guy Mm. coming in (laughs) telling us how we should be living and and what our religion means to us and Mm. what he represented and you might hear that and think, well maybe he was just a real feminist and he just really cared about women's values but at the same time as him saying this he was fighting women's suffrage back in England. So this was not just, this wasn't someone who just had a really sort of radical second wave attitude towards Women's Liberation, this was a guy that just had quite an orientalist view towards Mm. Islam, and particularly Muslim women. So people need to keep this in mind, that when there are some Muslims, and there are a lot of Muslims who very proudly identify as feminists, and that's important to keep in mind, but for some Muslims, this history is still quite fresh in the mind. Um, and, and it's very difficult to break this idea that um, feminism is anti-religion and anti-Islam, it's anti-family, it's anti-traditional culture, This because of the history that it has had in a number of these countries. So I knew that by bringing this up, it could it, it would get in the way of what I was trying to ask. What I was interested in in the end was actually very pragmatic. I actually don't care if these women call themselves feminists or not. It's actually not what's important to me. What is important to me is the work they were doing. I don't care if you call yourself feminist or not. Mm-hmm. If we're all trying to get to the same endpoint, which is you know equality and, and liberation of women, I don't mind if you call yourself feminist or you don't. If we're trying to get to the same uh, same lo- same endpoint, same location, and I knew that if I bringing up feminism, it would actually simply muddy the issue, which was different attitudes towards it. Now, I certainly think there are some criticisms of feminism within the Muslim community that are very unfair, and as stereotypical and as straw man-esque as some of the criticisms that are made about Muslims and Islam and so that frustrates me. Mm. But I do think the skepticism or unease that some Muslims have towards feminism needs to be understood in a historical and political context. It's not just a knee-jerk, we hate feminism because we hate women's rights. Far from it. Most Muslims would probably want to talk to you very proudly about Islam and women's rights and all the rights that Islam gave women. The issue is with feminism, and it needs to. We need to understand what feminism means in the Muslim imagination.
3: Mm. That was amazing. Thank you so much. Um, I will let you go because we've run a bit over time. But is there anything? Um, is there anything specifically you wanted me to leave that you wanted to say to leave the readers with or the listeners? I think
10: anything I would say is that. I know my book isn't going to change everybody's mind, and that's okay, no book does. All I was trying to do was bring some nuance to the conversation. So if even people read my whole book and come away going, "Mm, I think I still disagree, that's okay. I was just trying to add a bit of light and shade. And I think if we can just try to understand each other's perspective a bit better instead of having these infuriating two-dimensional caricatures specifically about Muslim women, the book's really not much about me at all. I didn't want it to be my biography these are the stories of these women and if people can hear about the diversity of these women like this is a really diverse group of women you know grandmothers and teenagers um straight and queer married widowed never married mothers not mothers but hear the, from their own perspective what these women say and what why they're doing that what they do and how the religion can actually be useful for them instead of them seeing it as a, it as a hindrance but actually being a tool they can use If people can just have that as part of their understanding of the conversation, I think that would
3: be useful. Mm. Yeah, I think it definitely achieves the nuance you're going for. It's fantastic. Thank you, I
1: appreciate that. You're listening to Tuesday Brekkie. We're nearly at the end of our show. Um, That was such a good interview, but I'll have to listen back. With the podcast. Thanks, babe. Um, so, I want to play a track. Um, this is my favourite Erica Badu song this week. Every week I have a new favourite <laughs> song of hers because she has so many albums, mm. like so many going back to the 90s, and they're all so different, like such a different sound. Um, this song is called Penitentiary Philosophy. <sighs>
10: every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a
3: current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing
10: women's perspectives on current affairs.
2: ...rights militantly,
8: never you fear!
10: Erosion of human rights leads directly and
1: inevitably to erosion of human security.
8: We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our lover Women on the line. Tune in on Mondays at 8:30 a.m. and Wednesdays at 6 a.m. on 3CR Community Radio 855 a.m. and streaming live at 3cr.org.au.
4: Welcome back to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR. Um, Before we wrap the show up today, I just wanted to briefly mention something. So last week, um, one of the interviews that we did with um, Debbie Kilroy from Sisters Inside, um, it was an interview about the new private women's prison um, that was going to be run by Serco in in Queensland. Um, And Debbie um, said something along the lines of women in prison have the highest mental health. Um, and she clearly meant the opposite. Um, She meant to say um, women in prison have the highest mental health issues, um, and that's something I didn't pick up on. Um, And we had a listener um, tweet um, at me um, saying, um, misusing the term mental health to mean mental ill health only increases the stigma for them. Health isn't good or bad, it's just a condition. And I just want to talk about that and, and thank... Um, the listener for bringing that to my attention Um, I'm not 100% sure if she'll be comfortable um, with me um, mentioning who she is so I won't Um, but I just wanted to say thank you so much for bringing that to my attention and um, yeah that I've promised to do better I guess Um, thank you so much for tuning in today to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast Um, I hope you've had a good time listening to us it's still pretty cold out there So I hope you're wrapping up um, and have a good rest of the week. So that's me, Lauren and George. Thank you for tuning in.